Hi, and welcome to one of our first corporate banking podcasts. My name is Jamie Grant. I'm the Managing Director for the Scotland Region, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Will Hobbs. And Will's here, and he's going to provide us an economic update. Welcome, Will. Um, you know, for everyone that's joining us on this podcast, would you be able to just give us a little bit more information about your role at Barclays? Sure. So, so my name's Will Hobbs. Um, I'm a Chief Investment Officer at somewhere called Barclays Investment Solutions. Um, so that's uh, a, a effectively an asset manager that sits within Barclays. We are uh, we advise clients on investments um, across all of the private client spectra- spectrum, from smart investor uh, to Barclays Wealth, um, and we also provide some economic commentary. That's great, Will. Thanks for that. So, so we're living in exciting times. Each day when we turn on the news or, or read the newspaper, it tends to be full of, uh, of Brexit and uh, thoughts around surrounding what's happening in the, the economy. You know, should we be expecting tougher market conditions and economic conditions for the future, or, or is it all a bit exaggerated? We'd we'll be interested just to hear some of your views on that. Well, of course. So I, I think um, there are a couple of things going on. Um, and what we can say... Um, about the UK economy is that the incoming economic data tells us that the economy um, has been running into the sand a little bit. Um, That means um, that a lot of the indicators coming in, so whether it's the GDP data or or business confidence, um, suggests that uh, things have slowed. Um, There are a couple of reasons potentially for that. People are obviously going to cite Brexit as one of those causes, and certainly the uncertainty created by the Brexit negotiations seems to have affected kind of private sector decision-making, so consumers and businesses seem a bit more reluctant. Um, and on the other side of it, the world economy um, has also been a bit slower, and so that's also had a bit of an impact um, on, on, on the UK economy. We want to be wary, though. Um, in the end of, of sort of you know, near-term forecasts with the UK economy, um, the range of outcomes for the UK economy at the moment is, is, is as wide, if not wider, than anywhere else, uh, any other country in the world. Um, and a lot of that does depend on kind of how Brexit negotiations go on. Uh, the rule that we've been saying, or the, the mantra that we've been um, chanting boringly, uh, or anyone who will listen, uh, is uh, the greater the confidence uh, with which someone uh, you hear someone predict the future, the less you should trust them. And, and with regards to, to Scotland itself, um, Will, do you see any differences um, between Scotland and the rest of the regions? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a number of ways that you can um, you can uh, look at some of the regional influences. And, um, and obviously, this is an economy where dispersion between regions is relatively small, um, in all truth. But there's a number of factors that people look at. And so what you can think about is um, one of the most important factors in explaining differences in growth in the past has been whether um, a particular region leans more towards manufacturing, um, which over the last 20 or 30 years has grown a little bit slower than the economy, uh, or whether it leans more towards kind of professional scientific and kind of technical services. Uh, And you find that a lot of the growth differential between the regions um, can be be explained, um, can be explained by that. So London has a relatively low um, proportion of manufacturing, um, whereas places like the East Midlands, um, Wales, 
you know, even Scotland, uh, have quite a high proportion uh, of manufacturing. Um, and so that, to a certain extent, has explained um, some of the sort of shortfall in growth over that period uh, amongst some of those areas. Other things, such as public sector employment, um, that's well worth um, considering. So if you, you know, one of the things um, in the post-crisis period is obviously the government austerity program, and that's obviously fallen harshest uh, on the areas with highest public sector employment. So, you know, Northern Ireland, Wales, Scotland, North East, again, all those areas um, that, you know, again, at some of that sort of growth shortfall relative to the to the average can be explained by that. And other things that people tend to look at is things like educational levels, um, you know, entrepreneurship. So, you know, look at business births. Um, and what you find there is a number of sort of interesting things. Because if you think about starting up a business in an area, um, one of the, um, you know, well, there's a number of things that you want. You want sort of transport infrastructure. You want availability of high-quality educated labor. Uh, so you can find that areas with a, a high proportion of graduates, university graduates, um, you know, again, that can have some explanatory power um, in terms of um, in terms of sort of the faster growing regions again London stands out quite a lot there um, the Midlands has a high proportion of graduates actually university graduates but has actually uh, been a bit weaker on the growth scale over the last um, 20 or so years looking forward one of the interesting things that we've seen actually um, more recently in the couple of years since um, since the Brexit vote, as you have seen some catch-up from the regions relative to, to London. I mean, because the last 20 or so years, years is a story of kind of London growing faster than the rest of the rest of the country. There's a number of sort of potential reasons for that. But you have seen some catch-up since. Now, whether that is because London indexes very highly in financial services, and that's been one of the areas that's potentially been a bit more worrisome in terms of you know Brexit, uh, the Brexit negotiations, um, or whether there's just some natural catch-up. One of the things that's close to everyone's heart is um, what's happening with house prices. Are you seeing any regional trends um, with regards to house prices, or indeed employment more generally? Yeah, so if, we, so if we look over the last um, year in particular, it's quite interesting to see that actually if you look at kind of um, things like house prices and employment, um, where we get sort of quite timely data, obviously, um, you know, the fastest or, or, or the, 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 the highest um, house price growth over the last year, uh, year and a bit, has been Scotland, um, South East, East Midlands, uh, and the lowest actually on that scale is London, um, and the Yorkshire, Yorkshire and the Humber in the North East. Um, so there is, has been some catch up there, employment wise. Um, again, it's North East, East of England, which have been seeing the largest rise in employment, um, with kind of London close, closest to the kind of close to the UK average. So there have been some changes there. Um, how long they last for? That's very difficult to, to, to argue for. Um, but I think generally the sort of lessons from this, you know, some of this regional dispersion uh, and you don't want to be too kind of prescriptive on this but you know it, it's it's about sort of making sure that um, businesses are as comfortable you, you are as attractive as possible uh, to businesses uh, locating in your area and that means transport transport infrastructure availability of high quality uh, you know personnel um, uh, and all of that kind of infrastructure story that makes businesses uh, comfortable in locating to your area. Well, although history was never my chosen subject at school, um, I do believe that you know, we can learn a lot from history in terms of what the future might hold. Are there any lessons on growth that we can learn from what's gone before us? Growth didn't really exist for the world um, until the middle of the 18th century when in this country um, you know, we had the Industrial Revolution and we sort of invented stuff that changed... The nature of growth, it freed us from our kind of physical constraints, our geographic constraints, my puny biceps no longer mattered, and 
so from whereas the world didn't grow at all, so you took about a millennium for living standards to double previous to 1700, post-1700, the world economy pretty much grew 1.5% every year. Now, the miracle of compound growth means that from that period, you know, living standards change or, or double every 50 years versus, you know, millennium previously. So, and for the first time in recorded human history, you get kind of visible changes in living standards, um, you know, from grandparent to grandchild. Now, if you think about it, that theory of growth makes it sound relatively fragile. It came out of the blue in the middle of the 18th century and, um, and could just as easily disappear. And lo and behold, there are some gloomy economists who are predicting exactly that. However, there is a kind of new attempt to understand this period. And, and bear with me, there's um, some academics called Broadbury and Wallace um, who did an interesting paper looking at trying to examine what growth looked like in the period previous to 1700. And they argued that the world economy didn't flatline during that period, that there was lots of little takeoffs. But the problem was that you had um, recessions coming 50% of the time, essentially expansions exactly matched or more or less exactly matched contractions. So the world economy made no net progress, even if you had lots of kind of innovation and attempts to. And what changed in the middle of the 18th century was not so much well, it was the nature of innovation that changed, but also it was the institutional context. We started, you know, post-enlightenment, we started to want to spread power around our economies. We didn't want to give all the power to, you know, a greedy monarch uh, who could just nickel our innovation. Um, we started to get better understanding of how the economy worked, so we became better managers of the economy. We developed social safety nets. We built up... Uh, a social, say, uh, uh, you know, a, a, an institutional context that increasingly allowed us to dodge the recessionary bullets uh, and protect the gains from innovation. So these guys, Broadbury and Wallace, argue that where recessions were 50% of the time previous to 1700, they were 30% of the time post-1700 and just 17% of the time post-1900. And so recessions have been becoming less frequent and less severe over time. And a large part of that is that institutional context that UK, the UK is so kind of blessed with relative to other places in the world. Now, other places in the world will catch up. They are trying to, you know, they are trying to make these, you know, China is, you know, in a lot of emerging markets are among those who've realized that this is part of the trick to sustainable growth. Um, and so our relative advantage will uh, hopefully erode over time to a certain extent because that means that everyone else is, um, you know, getting wealthier. But that does also mean in a sense that, the UK's institutions, which are very underestimated by those of us who live here, we focus much more on the kind of uh, noisy political foreground or all the other stuff, that suggests that, you know, we don't want to be too gloomy on the long-term prospects for the UK. Things will be all right. Another thing that people touch on quite a lot when I'm speaking to them is sterling, and it, it does seem to be quite a hot topic at the moment, especially with Brexit. What are your thoughts on the volatility and the outlook for sterling more generally? So sterling is obviously the subject of um, a lot of debate. Um, you know, some have argued that we want to permanently devalue sterling to sort of boost exports. Um, uh, there's, you know, to us, um, there's, uh, there's, we're not sure that that's the right answer in a sense. Uh, sterling doesn't look that far away from fair value as the economy stands. That's the first point to make. The other point to make is generally we've moved away from selling 
uh, kind of commoditized goods like coal or other sort of things that are internationally comparable on the marketplace. And actually, uh, a lot of the stuff that the UK specializes in is kind of value-added goods. Um, therefore, that tends to be um, a bit less, uh, you know, of an international price where you can compare it, and therefore the currency makes a big difference. That doesn't just say there are certain parts of industry that couldn't benefit from uh, cheaper currency, but also there's, you know, there, there's other parts to that um, that story that make it a much more complicated positive uh, than some uh, some might uh, some might argue. Um, in terms of the sort of wider capital markets, again, uh, one of the things to point out is that, for instance, with the UK stock market, the UK stock market has very little to do in aggregate with the UK economy. That may sound weird to say, um, but most of the companies quoted on the FTSE 100, for instance, um, have very little skin in the game, and UK economic skin in the game. They, their their uh, performance is uh, dictated much more by what goes on in the US or Asia, uh, you know, other parts of the world, or even the commodity complex. Much of that has very little to do with the UK economy. So linking the two tends to be um, the wrong way to go. One of the things we, we hear a lot in, in the press and the news is about the role of the, the Bank of England. Is there anything significant to note? Yes, I mean, the Bank of England um, has obviously come in for lots of abuse uh, in the last uh, last few years, particularly for its stance on kind of Brexit scenarios. Um, the difficulty, I guess, is that, you know, when you look at the if the long-term performance of an economy is anchored reasonably reliably to you know the growth of your population and how innovative that population is so you tend to find your trend growth rate um, is reasonably steady over time in the short run if you think about it your economy's performance is uh, much more in the hands of kind of private sector confidence you know how you and i feel um, when we wake up in the morning and go into work or not go into work um, do we worry about our jobs? Do businesses feel the same? So uh, confidence is a much more nebulous concept to kind of model and you know get on top of. Now, the Bank of England, for their part, um, have decided that certain scenarios would mean a sharp fall in confidence uh, and have therefore had to kind of you know try and uh, plan for the worst on that um, on that scope. Uh, I don't think they can necessarily be blamed for that. In the short run, like I say, uh, there are all sorts of um, outcomes um, based on sort of how consumers and businesses feel uh, in the wake of uh, in the wake of certain political uh, you know decisions or agreements. Um, so the Bank of England has a, a tough job at the moment. Uh, you know, if all things being equal um, and you get a uh, um, some form of an uh, you know. A negotiated exit from the EU, you will find probably that interest rates have to rise, uh, you know, slowly. A long, drawn-out rate rising cycle looks to be on the cards at the moment. And one final question, if I may, Will. Um, I hear from businesses a lot, you know, I go around the country speaking to, you know, CEOs and, and boards, and one of the things I hear a lot is about them putting things on hold. Do you think some of these deferrals of investment decisions may indeed have a longer-term impact on our economy? It's, it's a really interesting question. So one of the things that, um, so when we came to writing about the Brexit writing and thinking about, um, you know, the, the, re the vote on the EU referendum back in, uh, on our membership of the EU back in, um, back in 2016, it's another lifetime ago, um, the, our initial argument, and this was we were writing from the perspective of the end of 2015, I guess, um, are we argue then that Brexit long term, if the UK decided to vote for it, would be likely a headwind for the UK economy, but probably a digestible one uh, once all the kind of dust has settled. And there is considerable dust in the short run. 
Um, the reason for reason why we thought it would be um, a headwind is because, in a sense, the UK is trying to create a slightly more closed economy with higher barriers to trade and a little bit less immigration. All things being equal, that should result in a slightly lower trend growth rate. Um, why we didn't think it would be the end of the world um, is really to do with the kind of the institutional context um, in this country. And that's quite a complicated phrase to sort of think, oh, we've got to unpack it a little bit, I think. Um, but it's really about that kind of ease of doing business. Um, why do businesses locate to a particular country? And really, a lot of the reasons are to do with legal systems, benign democracy, predictability. Um, you know, so if I think I make a 20-year investment he'd say Scotland, what I'm looking to be able to do is is um, know or know to the greatest degree possible that in 20 years' time, someone's, or in 10 years' time, a government is not going to come along and say, actually, those assets are mine, um, or we've changed the legal system altogether and your, uh, you know, your recourse to justice has changed altogether. Um, alongside the idea that, you know, I'm still going to have access to a workforce, a flexible workforce, a well-educated workforce. Now, long-term, the UK has tended to provide for those things very well, and we suspect it will continue to do so. That means that it'll be a very attractive place to invest. A lot of the businesses that we've spoken to over the last couple of years, overseas or domestic, um, you know, a lot of them have talked about putting their UK plans on ice rather than cancelling them altogether. So a lot of them are just waiting for a little bit more um, certainty. Well, thank you very much for your time today. It's been real, real insight into the wider economy, some of the trends that we're seeing. We really appreciate you spending the time with us today, and I'm sure the audience and our colleagues and, and customers will uh, at least have, uh, have learned something. I know I certainly have, um, but thanks again for your time and look forward, to, uh, look forward to speaking to you again soon. Barclays Bank PLC is not liable for the impact of any decisions made based on the information contained or the views expressed. Barclays Bank PLC is authorised by the Prudential Regulation Authority and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. More details, including how you can contact us, are in the description of this podcast.